I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today, one of the brightest minds in the National Football League. Early in his developmental years, he became attracted to the Dallas Cowboys and the way they ran their organization with Tex Schramm, their president, Gil Brandt, and Tom Landry. After graduating from Colby, where he was a three-year starter and captain, he went to Trinity to coach and work on his master's degree in English. He had an opportunity to be an intern with the Washington Redskins. At the same time, his parents weren't real excited about him joining the National Football League. He had a chance to join the Ravens, and the rest is history. Under Ozzie Newsom's uh, leadership, grew in responsibility and scope, but he continued to use his intellect, his adaptability to build strong relationships across the organization. Today, he and John Harbaugh have built one of the premier organizations in all of sports. Our guest, the EVP and general manager of the Baltimore Ravens, Eric DaCosta. Welcome, friends. So our guest today, early in his life, even though he grew up in Massachusetts, was a Dallas Cowboy fan. My understanding is that Cowboy interest came from their organization. Their organization at that point was ahead of the times with Tex Schramm and with Gil Brandt and with Tom Landry. So talk us through how that image and that organization kind of formed the foundation for what you're doing today. Yeah, Jed. Well, I played football my whole life. I was fortunate to live on a street. It was a we call it the block, and it was a, <laughs> we had about you know maybe twelve or fifteen boys that were all aged between seven and thirteen. So football, we played every day. We were outside all the time. <laughs> and back in nineteen seventy-eight, I was seven years old. The Cowboys were playing the Broncos. You remember that well, Jed. And uh, half the bus stop wanted the Cowboys, half the bus stop wanted the Broncos. And I was a Cowboys side. And I became a Cowboys fan. And, you know, I was an avid reader. My mom sort of uh, fostered that behavior in me. I would read a lot. I love reading about sports. I was always reading the sporting sports pages, sporting news. Boston Globe had a great sports page. It covered football extensively. And I just became enthralled with the Cowboys, um, the way that they scouted players, the way that they scouted big school players, small school players, HBCU players. You know, I would read a lot about Gil Brandt. They were using computers, um, Tex Schramm, Coach Landry. And to me, they were just this thing that you aspired to want to be, you know, thinking outside the box, doing things a little bit differently. 
always being ahead of the curve. Uh, that really spoke to me. You know, I also grew up an avid Celtics fan. And it was kind of the same mystique back then, you know, with Red Auerbach and the, the Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish. But again, the way that they did things, the trades that they made, you know, always getting ahead of other teams, using the roster with contracts and trading and the draft and things. So for me, as a youngster playing football, obviously wanted to play in the NFL, but if I couldn't play in the NFL, my goal was not necessarily to coach like a lot of people's goals would be. Uh, in my position. My goal was to be in a front office and to find ways to exploit situations and the rules and to draft better than other teams and to make trades and to sign players to long-term contracts and to always find value that way. For me, that was really the appeal of working in professional sports and something I aspire to. Well, what's interesting is you went to Kobe, undersized, three-year starter, captain of the team. Then you end up going to Trinity you know, working with the football team, working on a master's in English and getting ready to, to go to law school. And all of a sudden this internship happens with the Ravens and you haven't left. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, it's been a love fest. Well, I knew I was trying to, you know, going to Colby, you know, you're not you're not they're not putting a lot of NFL people out <laughs> there. You're not getting any professional players. You know, you do have some people working in front offices, but at that time, not many. I was a little bit ahead of my time. Most of the people who go to Colby end up being doctors and lawyers and work on Wall Street and different things. But I wanted to coach because I knew that coaching would be the avenue for me to get into the front office. So I got the job at Trinity. That was a great experience for me. I had always been a defensive player. I had a chance to work on the offensive side of the ball. They had a great coach by the name of Don Miller. And Don Miller was an offensive guru at the time. Uh, we ran the Tubby Raymond sort of wing T, Delaware wing T. I learned a lot in that experience. Uh, I then had a chance to do an internship with the Redskins and scouting under Charlie Casserly. There was this great pipeline of people that had gone to work for Charlie. He would hire five to six interns every year. I had a chance to do that back in 1995. That was really a springboard for me because Charlie recommended me to Ozzy when Cleveland was moving to Baltimore. So I had a chance to, to interview for the job in Baltimore. Uh, some really good candidates for that job. Uh, Les Snead was a candidate for that job when I got hired. And also um, Paul D. Podesta as well. And those two guys were actually offered the job before me. And it just goes to show you how these decisions over time really reverberate in different things. Because I don't know what I would be doing if those guys had accepted the job. I'm not sure I would have gotten another chance to get into the league. I had been accepted to law school. I probably would have gone to law school. I ended up deferring my law school acceptance for a year to, to see how this thing with the NFL went because my parents weren't really sold on the <laughs> idea of me coming down to Baltimore. Uh, with all my student loan and student debt, they weren't really sold on me coming down here for uh, a very, very small salary when I would have the chance maybe to go to law school, get a law degree, and do something in the real world, as they thought, you know? <laughs> um, but I came down, I worked with Ozzy from day one. We had a lot of really talented people working with us at that time. You know, Phil Savage, Scott Pioli, George Kokinas, all those guys became GMs at some point. Um, we had Marvin Lewis, who was our defensive coordinator. We had Kirk Ferentz, who's the head coach at Iowa still. Pat Hill, uh, Pat Hill was the head coach at Fresno. We had a lot of really, really talented people. Uh, Jimmy Schwartz was on staff. 
uh, Eric Mangini was on staff. All those guys became head coaches. So for me as a youngster, it was really an amazing experience to learn from some of the brightest people in the league and uh, very, very invaluable. Well, you continued to move up uh, in terms of talent evaluation game. And people were always interested in recruiting. I can remember mm -hmm. times when I tried to recruit you. And mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though uh, there might there was never, in my mind, uh, a sense you were ever going to leave because there was something about the culture and the Ravens that really, uh, I think, was attuned to your DNA. You know, Jay, I think a lot about that. You've been really valuable to me with your advice over the years and our conversations. And, you know, I do think I, the one time I thought maybe I might have left was when the Seattle job was open way back when, I probably 2010 maybe. I know you were really involved in putting that whole team together. And it was really a brilliant match, what you did with that organization. It was uh, incredible. That was an appealing situation for different reasons. But in the end, I look at it as a relationship business. And when I think about the Ravens, I think about Steve Bishotti. And I think about Dick Cass and Ozzy uh, and then John. And I've been part of this partnership and it really works well. It doesn't exist everywhere. It's hard to find. So if you have it, you, you have to recognize it and embrace it. And I do think we have a special culture here. I think we trust each other. We respect each other. And I think for an organization to truly succeed, you've got to have that. Uh, I know a lot of people. You know a lot of people. They go to different places and you're probably convinced they're going to succeed and they don't for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And you know, the person's talented because you worked with them or you know, the person you better the person you've studied the person you've interviewed the person. What happens a lot of times is they don't have the support. They don't have the people working with them. And I knew that by staying there, I would have all the support that I would need to succeed. And that was very, very important to me. When you think about, what you've been through the last year and a half, almost two seasons with the COVID, and then the unprecedented amount of injuries that you've had this year. Yeah. How do you continue to build a roster? How do you continue to find people so John has a chance to go out and compete? Well, we're working in the margins. Everything we do now is how do we achieve some degree of value with a player, with a transaction, with a roster moving? You're not going to make these big moves. You're not going to make these big splash moves, but how do you win a transaction? How do you find a guy that can play 20 plays for you this week and help you win? How do you use the rules so that you might, you know, even though you can only have 53 players on the roster, maybe you have six or seven players on the practice squad who are actually good enough to be on the active, but just don't have a spot with somebody else. So you have them on your practice squad. A lot of it, I think, is communication. You've got to trust people. I can't watch every single practice squad player in the NFL. I don't have the time to do that. So I've got to have other people who I trust that do that very, very well. I need really good football ops people here to make sure that our players are protected, that the rooms are spaced out, that the seating is spaced out, that we're doing really good things in the kitchen with our food, that our players are eating healthy, that they're socially distant so we can keep our players as healthy as possible. That the role of the trainers can't be denied and the doctors being conservative with our injuries, but also pushing our players to come back as quickly as possible. Um, those things are critical. And then the final piece is, as a GM, building such a strong relationship with the head coach that you're on the same page all the time. And when you're not, you scrimmage, talk about why, why you might disagree with that decision. 
how you work it out. Because as a GM, the challenge is to be focused on the short term, but also be hyper-focused on the long term. Coaching tends to be very hyper-focused on the short term only. The GM doesn't have the luxury of being hyper-focused in the short term, meaning that season. I've got to look out two years, three years, five years down the road as well from a salary perspective and from a talent perspective. So I can't get too caught up in the immediacy of let's win the game this week. So when you think about when you were young and you talked about cutting edge and things that you're doing, mm-hmm. the, the analytics has been an important part of what you've adapted and what you've, what you've done. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, you've, you've had two games where decisions that Coach Harbaugh's made, you have come under scrutiny based on you know, going for two points as opposed to trying to tie the game and so forth. So yeah. talk a little bit about how analytics are used broadly as it relates to personnel, wellness, and football, as much as you want to reveal. I mean, there may be some secrets yeah. that you don't want everybody to know about, but just the general philosophy of how you've adopted that because it seems to be a critical part of the whole organization. Yeah, well, I think first from a scouting perspective, we uh, we do quite a bit of modeling. We started out with a very small staff of people, of two people, and now we've, we're up to five or six people on the scouting side. Very, very bright, intelligent people, work, work very, very hard. We do a lot of modeling with players, trying to find you know qualities that we think predict that the player being successful or in some cases not being successful. That really helps me in the draft and in free agency, but, you know, especially during the draft, as we talk about ranking players, which I did and and do now still as GM, but I've done stacking the board. I've been doing that now since 2004. I think I'm, I'm pretty good at it, but I know I'm not perfect. And so where the modeling comes in is it really helps me in these individual buckets of players. So if you have, Let's just say A, B, C's, and D players, A's being the best, D's being the worst. If you've got 50 B players, some of those B players are actually going to be A minus players. And some of those B players might end up being C plus type players. But if they're on the B bracket or B bucket, it's very hard to sort through and delineate those guys. Where the modeling comes in, my my problem is not necessarily getting them in the right bucket initially, but then parsing through that bucket really trying to separate those players. And that's where the modeling has really helped me quite a bit. We've also, I think, moved on to doing a lot of different things in terms of performance and wellness. As we get more and more information and data points on these guys, uh, the GPS stuff, energy output, uh, nutrition, we look at a lot of different things and try and find which players can maintain their speeds throughout the games, uh, which players have the potential to be hurt, which players seem to be the most durable type of guys that we're looking at. We do a lot of modeling in terms of personality traits. Uh, We look at things like um, the grit, growth mindset, a lot of really that we feel are really important things to predict which players have the best chance to succeed here. Also, we've got a, a group of really smart people who primarily spend their time working on the coaching side. We've got a guy here that's a local guy. You might know his family, Jed. Uh, and he's a, a really smart guy who works primarily with John. And uh, his role is in-game decision-making, when to go for two, when to go for one, when to punt, when not to punt. What statistics give you the best chance to win on any given Sunday? And that's really, really important. Um, 
we do a lot with replay. He watches the replays. He decides or he, he confers with John when to challenge and when not to challenge. I feel like we've always had an edge there. You know, I think we've had some really smart people who have helped us with that. John has really become a believer in the statistics and the science of it. Um, it was controversial probably four or five years ago. Nowadays, you see a lot of coaches doing some things that 10 or 15 years ago, we'd all look at and say, that's crazy. You don't go for it on fourth and five on your own 30-yard line. But you see that every Sunday now. And that's because of the analytics. Um, and it's also just because, you know, there's certain biases that we all possess. And it's like one of them is you never want to be that guy to be the first to do something. But once somebody does it, then it takes the pressure off of you. And you're like, well, he did it. I'm going to go for it too. Oh, he just went for fourth and eight on the 35-yard line before the end of the half. I'm going to do the same thing. It used to be back then you'd never do that. They'd run you out of the locker room if you tried to make some of those decisions. And now people look at you and they expect you to make those decisions. We've seen that in all sports in different ways. We've seen changes in all sports. And a lot of that is really based on the analytics and the science and the data and the numbers. And that has created, I think it's fun. It's created a change in climate in professional sports where the games aren't played the way they used to be. Some people butt up against that. And I think other people can embrace it. Well, I think if you go back two years ago, Tampa, uh, the, uh, Tampa was playing the Dodgers in the sixth game of the World Series. And the pitcher got to a certain point in pitch count. And he was pitching really well and they were winning the game. And the manager decided he was going to take him out because he was following the rules that had gotten him to where he was. Yeah. And they ended up losing the game. And he was highly criticized for it. So you go back to you know, the point of, okay, you have all that data. How much then becomes subjective based on what's going on in the game? And you take that data uh, and you have to, do you rely on now your instinct as opposed to what the, the data says, or do you stick with the data? So that becomes a, an issue I think people are debating today. Yeah, and it's hard with the social media because you make a good decision, and I've, been, I've seen this happen with me too. You make a good decision. It doesn't have a good result. doesn't mean it wasn't a great decision. Right. You just have a bad result. People on social media then start blowing you up, and next thing you know, you're the village idiot. And you know, doesn't and yeah, I'll be like, that was a good decision. I don't feel bad about that decision. You know, I I think it was a great decision. Other times, I've and I've seen this. You make you make a bad decision, you have a good result, and you, everyone thinks you're a genius. But when you really look at it, you're like, man, that was not a good decision to take a, an offensive guard over a offensive tackle when they're both there and they both have the same grade. Always take the tackle, but you took the guard. The guard ended up pretty good because that was a great pick. But then you look and the, the tackle went to another team, and he ended up being an All Pro. Your guard ended up being good for you, but you should have taken the all-pro. And people say, oh, that was a great pick. Well, it really wasn't a great pick. So that happens a lot with the data. You, you, you got to follow the data. You got to believe in it. You got to embrace it. Now, there will always be, you know, it's like that Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hours. You know, you do build up an experience level and you've got to embrace it. And you've got to trust your instincts in certain situations. And I try to do that. Um, yeah, I definitely will do that. Sometimes that will be. Contrary to the data, doesn't happen a lot. And it could be as nuanced as just seeing a player at practice, how he conducts himself. There's nothing analytically, say, that viewing a player at practice and watching him kind of be an idiot during practice should affect the grade of the player. But with my experiences, it does affect because I think to myself, okay, this guy doesn't know that I'm watching him. 
seems very immature. What's going to happen when he comes to Baltimore? At some point, he's going to be immature. And that's not something that can be measured. It's just something that a scout will see. It's just an anecdotal thing that maybe a coach experiences in a workout or something like that. But those things do matter. You interview a player and his eyes are down all the time. He might look great analytically. But the body language of the player, you know, I say to myself, man, something's missing with this guy. I'm not really sure what it is. But I got to embrace that and say, hey, you know what? I know what the numbers say. I can't buy the package. That makes sense. So talk about, as we close, how the general manager job has changed. I know you and I have had discussions about it. I mean, yeah. still, teams are hiring people based on just somebody's ability to evaluate talent, not understanding the complexity and the broadness of how this job has changed. So talk a little bit about how you've seen the evolution and what you think is required for today's general manager. That's a great question. Could talk a long time about that. <laughs> I, I was trained as a scout and I'm an old school scout, but I think, and I'm not, I'm not, I'll say this, you know, I was not a math guy. I'm not a computer guy. I'm not a science guy. I'm not really a deep thinker. But what, the one quality that I have is that I'm a problem solver and I can get a lot of things done at the same time. And that served me well. The reason why they call this job the general manager and not the general scout or the roster builder is because you deal with issues every day that have nothing to do with evaluating talent. It, it just, it's, it's, I spend most of my days now on issues with people, uh, talking through solutions, trying to find issues, trying to find problems that we can fix every single day with players, with coaches, with the league, um, doctors, trainers. I still scout a lot, and I, but I have to find time to scout. I have to make time every day to look at players. It doesn't just happen. I don't have eight hours at my desk like I used to as the scouting director where I'm just watching tape over and over and over again. I got to make time early in the morning, late at night, early in the morning on the weekends, because this job doesn't allow you to do what you used to do. Scouting got me noticed, but the skills to succeed in this job aren't scouting. I mean, that's a part of it, but you've got to be a, a person who builds relationships with people, who can solve problems that have nothing to do with the game on Sunday. You know, obviously you want to build the best team. We have a lot of time to do that. But then when you build that team, a lot of things happen. You're negotiating contracts. Um, you're dealing with agents. You're dealing with players. You're dealing with player issues. You're dealing with off-the-field stuff. You're dealing with the coach. You're dealing with the coach's demands and the coach's needs, all the coaches. Um, you're dealing with the NFL all the time. You're really trying to solve individual problems every day that come up a lot of times. And it might be big. They might be small. But you've got to be able to embrace and handle these situations. You can't just – I have some friends. They are some of my very best friends in the entire world. They became general managers. And they would go on the road and they would scout players all the time while they were GMs. And I don't know. I just don't know how they could do that. Maybe they're smarter than me. Maybe they work harder than me. But I know that 95% of my time is dedicated to this building during the season. And scouting players is important, but it's not the most important thing. 
when you're trying to keep a team together and build a team. You've got the players here in the building. They require all your time. So what I would say, people always ask me for advice, how to become a, a leader of an organization. And, and I would say that you've got to listen to people. You've got to listen to their problems. Um, you've got to be a person that's willing to embrace a challenge and find ways, cre creative ways to fix problems, to think outside the box. I think emotional intelligence is critical, very, very critical. Relating to other people's challenges, being empathetic, um, but being firm. And, uh, and then I, I would say read as much as you can. There's so much knowledge out there. And I read a lot of business stuff. I read a lot, a lot of the, uh, read a lot of the Harvard Business uh, Review stuff. I love reading about finance. I'm not a numbers guy, but that's really helped me. I've really come to enjoy the challenges of the salary cap. And I was a guy that would, would flunk math, but I love it now. Um, I love a new challenge. So there's so many things you can read. Podcasts, there's so many things. Leadership, I think, is critical. Reading about other leaders, how they do things, how they navigate issues. I read about leaders, CEOs, business people. A lot of the challenges are the same. The game is different, but the challenges are the same. And so I would really encourage people to really think outside the box a little bit, stretch yourself, challenge yourself, because you'll learn a lot. It's not just, well, I want to be a scout. That's going to only get you so far in this business. You've really got to embrace what it is to be a leader. And just sitting there watching tape all day long isn't going to get it done. When we started the conversation we, and discussed the Ravens, you talked about your owner, you talked about your head coach, you talked about yourself. When you think about the different structures in the NFL, you have the Belichick model that he's in charge of everything. Uh, you've got the Green Bay model where the head coach and the general manager both report into uh, Mark Murphy. Who's the, who's the CEO. And then you have the conventional model where the head coach reports into the general manager and the general manager reports into the owner. So what do you think from your perspective, what's the most effective model in today's environment in your mind? That's a tough question, but the, the most important model is just communication. You know, I mean, any model can work if you've got the right type of communication with the people that you work with. And so in our situation, for instance, We've always kind of had the same model, which is the head coach and the GM work together as partners and they both report to the owner. For that to work effectively, the GM has to really stretch himself and spend as much time as possible communicating with the head coach, the moves that we make, why we're making them, inclusion, including the coaches in the process, including John in the process. It doesn't work if the general manager shuts the coach out. It won't work. Just like if I've got a question about a game or if I've got a question about a player, if I've got a question about a decision that was made, if I don't get the appropriate answer or the appropriate response, it's not going to work. I was blessed, Jed, to, to see Ozzie Newsome as a GM for 25 years, and he did it with Coach Marchabroda. He did it with Coach Billick. And he did it with Coach Harbaugh. And I basically, I learned how to copy. I learned how to copy when I was in middle school. And so um, I just copy. I just copy what Ozzie did and what Ozzie does. And that's been my approach. I don't think you have to be the one person. I don't think there's just one right setup. I mean, there's many different ways. Seattle is a great setup. New England in its way is a great setup. I think we're a great setup. I think Pittsburgh is a great setup. A great setup is actually continuity. That's what leads to a great setup. Finding the right people 
and giving them enough time to build a relationship and succeed. It's always a great setup if you can stay together for 10 or 15 years and you can win. Um, it doesn't have to be one way or the other. It's not black or white. I think a lot of owners are very impatient people. Um, they change things quite a bit, which keeps people like you busy. Yeah. But I think in the end, Jed, you know, as you know, you look at these model franchises in all of sports and they're very stable front office wise and very stable coaching wise. Yeah, I mean, you look across the pond and Man City's a great example of that. They have yeah. Ferran, who's the CEO, and Pep's been their head coach, and they've been uh, running that and, and at the top of the, the heap year in yeah. and year out. They're, they're competing uh, for the reason that you just discussed. Well, I know your time's limited. You've got two games remaining. You've got a chance to continue to play in for the playoffs. You've had an amazing streak of wins over the last five years in terms of what you've been able to succeed in. And um, thanks for coming on. Appreciate uh, your candor, your honesty. And uh, mom instilled in you how to read and how to study and how to stay ahead of the game. So uh, thanks for sharing uh, your journey with us. Thanks, Jed. It was my pleasure. Good luck. Thank you.